is a little is a question regarding Kalama Sutta. So the famous sutta that's often being quoted where, where Buddha um, encourages people of Kalama that came to talk to him to uh, to learn how to think basically for oneself. So it lists um, various um, things to be avoided when it comes to one's own reasoning, things that would be um, contradictory or would constitute what's known as the um, logical fallacies. So obviously I'm not going to read the whole sutta here, it can be included in the description. But the point is, Kalamas were in doubt because there were many different teachings, many different teachers, Propagating many different teachings, uh, coming coming around, and then uh, they 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 couldn't. They were wondering, how can they know for uh, for themselves which one of those teachers is right and which one isn't? So um, <clears throat> the Buddha then tells them that um, it is quite proper <laughs> that they are doubtful, because when you're hearing contradictory instructions, uh, you can't say they're all right. Um, so you have to then start. Well, you have to then find some sort of criteria that can help you discern which ones are right, which ones are wrong, or which ones are which ones are less likely to be wrong, which ones are more likely to be to be right, and so on. So the first one is not to go um, not to go upon um, what has been acquired by repeated hearing um, from different people, i.e., majority. So not to go simply upon tradition, not to go upon hearsay not to go upon what's in the um, scriptures, um, not uh, upon surmise, not upon an axiom, not upon faulty reasoning, not upon bias, not upon another's apparent uh, competence, competence of another, confidence of another, and not upon mere reasoning um, consideration that, oh, this teacher, this monk is our teacher and thus we just go upon what he says. So the first one is not to go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing. Um, that's often used used as an argument um, on its own. So so the point of all of these things is like not to use um, these criteria as sole criterias for deciding what's right, what's wrong. Um, in other words, you have to take responsibility for choosing what criteria you want to use. And therefore, you can't say, oh, this is right because the majority said so, or this is right because of our teacher said so. No, this is right because I chose to regard it as right on the basis of what I heard from my teacher or on the basis of what majority says. In other words, majority cannot um, provide the, the basis for validity of the argument. You are the one choosing to use majority as an excuse for the validity of the argument. So in this case, don't don't do that. Don't go upon that which has been here, uh, which has been uh, acquired by repeated hearing. So you've been hearing the same thing here and same thing there and same thing somewhere else, on and on and on and on through like many different sources. But you, you've been hearing the same thing, and for some people that will be enough uh, to take that thing to be the truth. So yeah, the point here that um, that it's useful to add is that sometimes when people come across the conflicting instructions they would choose to side with the instruction that came from the majority simply because it's the majority of people saying and thus all these people are more likely to be right than this one person who says that 
but that in itself, uh, as I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a plain logical fallacy because it's not about how many people are saying something, it's about whether that thing um, has the universal truth in it, universal truth that we're going to discuss further on in this talk. Um, because if such, if such a, um, a reasoning were followed, then nobody would have ever listened to the Buddha. The Buddha was literally the only one in the entire cosmos saying certain things, teaching the Dhamma. Nobody else can teach the Dhamma except the Buddha. So if people were to go by the criteria of majority is always right, Dhamma would have not arisen ever. Um, and uh, and that's, that's, that's kind of a contradictory standpoint for somebody who wants to practice the Dhamma today, yet dismisses the instructions because they're not part of the established majority, or uh, it's, you know, I just heard it once and so on. No, it doesn't matter if you just hear it briefly from one person and never ever again from anybody else. It still requires, it still, it still um, deserves the equal amount of consideration and, and, um, and sort of contrasting against the principle of greed, aversion, delusion, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Um, and, uh, and then on the basis of that, you can decide if it's right or wrong, not on the basis of how many people agree with it or not. Even if that thing is the truth, it's a mistake to take it simply on the basis of repeated hearing. Oh, the majority said so, that's it. Who am I to disagree? Well, that's what it says here. You should be the one who will then question that despite a uh, vast majority saying that's, that is so. So you question it by the principles that he outlines in the same sutta, which is uh, these things are good and these things are bad. Things that are good are things that are... Uh, lust-free, greed-free, ill-will-free, distraction-free, things basically that are not avoiding responsibility by taking up responsibility. Things that are bad are things that are rooted in greed, aversion, delusion, and everything else, desire, sensuality, everything else that revolves around them. So, majority might be saying something, and whether that's right or wrong, you can reflect uh, on the basis of the principle of greed, non-greed, aversion, non-aversion, delusion, on the so. If, for example, majority says, no, 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 um, like household life is good and practice of Dharma is not so good or it's not necessary to become a monk and so on. You ask yourself, okay, so the whole world might be agreeing upon this, but which one of those two ways, one claim is right, the other one claim is wrong, leads to dispassion or passion, leads to greed, aversion, delusion, or freedom from greed, aversion, delusion? Which one leads to uh, liberation from, from um, acquisitions, from ownerships, from burden, and which one leads to accumulation of those. So you use that now as a criteria to see whether the whole majority is right or wrong. Not simply, well, everybody said so, thus it must be right. So the, the similar, the one that follows is then don't go simply upon tradition. It's very similar, it's just like a more, uh, more specific type of majority, the majority of my tradition. And you often encounter that in the in the monastic settings, whereby, like you know, the monks that themselves will be quoting Kalama Sutta at the same time refuse to simply put tradition in question or the traditional ways. So it's not for the sake of dismantling tradition or, or fighting against it. It's simply for the sake of not using that as a sole criteria because that's not where greed, aversion, delusion are. So if your goal is to practice the Dhamma for the liberation of your mind. Uh, none of these external criteria can be taken as trustworthy because greed, aversion, delusion are on the level of your own intention, your own mind, your own choices. 
Um, and that can only be visible to you if you have uh, stopped resorting to these external criteria of self-justification. Oh, well, I don't, I don't think about it much because uh, that's just how we do it in this tradition. And to make things worse today, you know, having been so long since the Buddha passed away, often you find Buddhist traditions that are completely the opposite of what the Buddha said you should do. And people would know that. So in full awareness of the Buddha said one thing, tradition says another thing, but I go with the tradition because, you know, it's been done for so long. Or because the majority of the people that I align myself with agree with this. Or, on a more personal level, out of, uh, out of fear. Out of a fear to, uh, to, to stand out. So, although I know what the Buddha said, the tradition requires me to do something else, I'll just do something else so nobody will criticize me or blame me. But then you should really reevaluate why do you want to practice Dhamma in the first place? To soothe the majority or to free yourself from samsara once and for all? All of that results in avoidance of personal responsibility. And if there is no taking up of personal responsibility, there is no practice for Dhamma. So that's why even if the tradition is right, you mustn't take it on the level of tradition. You must take it on the level of the personal responsibility for greed, aversion, delusion or freedom from those. So the point of... Um, the point of not going by mere tradition, it's not, you know, anarchy and, 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 and um, sort of rebellion against it. The point is, that's not, uh, if you are going by it, uh, you are avoiding responsibility. So you have to take it up. So if you choose to follow tradition, you choose to because you made a choice to do so. So it's on you. So if you choose to do something that tradition says you should do, you do it because you choose to do it. Not because tradition said so and I'm absolved from responsibility for doing so. So it always comes back on you. And uh, the sooner you step, uh, step away from that group belonging of the tradition or majority or, or we are in this together, the sooner your practice will start. So then the, the third one, don't go upon hearsay. So itikira, the, the, the Pali word, and it's the whole point is the hearsay. Just uh, you heard something seems right and that's it that's enough on its own to kind of accept that argument and that's that's even more careless than the, the, the previous two two examples also uh, anecdotal evidence would come under this as well rumor and so on so it's like uh, oh such and such Ajahn said so or something happened to him thus that's the truth uh, that applies to all of us or uh, such and such person interprets certain rules or practices in this way. I heard that from somebody else, uh, but that's good enough for me to, to follow it. Don't go upon what's in the scripture. And uh, that's an interesting one. So basically the authority of the texts, and you find that same even in the early Buddhist you know, suttas, not in them, but in people's attitude towards them. Like, uh, doesn't matter how authoritative text might be. The point is, the entirety of it, it's still on the level of what the Buddha called phrasing. So there is phrasing of something, and then there is meaning of what you just put in phrases. And um, scriptures are the phrasing, which means every single individual that chooses to read the scriptures is responsible for the meaning they infer from those phrases. And that also applies uh, even to the uh, individual terms and designations, indivi individual words. Even when you're just doing, doing a mere translation, you're already coming with certain preconceived notions of uh, the meaning behind those terms. So then when you compile some broader meaning on the basis of a broader uh, collection of phrases, 
all of those individual little uh, meanings that you have inferred do kind of influence the general uh, understanding that you got from it. So that's why that, that taking up responsibility from um, on the smallest level is really important. So that's why even if it's the Buddha's words written down accurately in the suttas and we all agree this is what he said, that's still not an objective truth. Objective truth is the assembly of those phrases, the arrangement. That's the objectivity of it. Meaning from it can never be placed on the scripture itself. And that's what, what we said in the other talks. The whole point of, of practice, of, of studying and trying to understand the Buddha's phrases, instructions, designations, and so on, is to be free from greed, aversion, delusion, to be free from passion. So, study of phrases, if it's not resulting in freedom from greed, aversion, delusion, you are not understanding its meaning. doesn't matter how well-skilled and informed and, 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 and scholarly trained and understanding every single etymology and permutation and declinations of the word are, if you are not, at least Sotapanna, free from greed, aversion, delusion, practicing those, that none of these phrases apply to you. Because that's what the phrases say themselves. If somebody were to understand the Buddha's instruction, they would have at least the right view. So this particular example, don't go upon what's in the scripture, it's, 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 quite, it's quite relevant uh, for most of us because you do have to start somewhere, you do have to start from some sort of faith in some sort of authority uh, that can tell you how to practice, but it's, it's easy then to fall into a view that that's the truth in itself and that you are not responsible for how you're already approaching it with your attitudes and preconceived notions and implied meanings and so on. So, yes, you need the right phrasing, but as the other requisite for the right view is you also, need to have, you also need to know how to attend things properly. And that's pretty much what this comes down to. Uh, if you attend things properly, you will know that correct understanding of the meaning of the phrasing has to result in this passion. If there is no dispassion, there is no disenchantment, there is no relinquishment, there is no right view, you are not understanding the meaning of the phrasing. doesn't matter how satisfied and how much clarity you might have on account of your, you know, informational collection of, of all the phrases and that you have memorized and know by heart and so on. So don't put the responsibility for the meaning of what you're trying to understand on the level of scholastic studies of the phrases, because that's not where the meaning is. And uh, by putting it there, you're pretty much, again, comes back to the same, avoiding responsibility uh, for your own interpretation of the meaning that again it's not optional even if you're approaching just a, a, a brand new text that you've never seen before you're already approaching it with preconceived notions preconceived meanings of the terms that appear through those phrases and so on so that's why i said in, in some other talk like you don't really again if you have self-transparency uh, take up responsibility um, you don't even need to be uh going too far into the study of the phrases, you can even use your own language and just say uh, consciousness. Okay, Pali is Vijnana, means consciousness. Okay, so now you have two phrases that you just compared with each other. One phrase is in Pali, one phrase is in English. What is the meaning of either of those? Or what is the meaning of that phenomena that you're designating through these phrases? Now, you will not arrive at that meaning if you start studying the etymology and the root of the Vijnana and how it came to be in consciousness and so on. That might enrich your information, that can help you look for the meaning. But if your attitude is not to look for the meaning, but onto the authority of the texts, 
the whole domain of where the meaning is is still invisible to you. So instead of uh, going into more detail, more often than not, what you need to do is go back uh, onto the, the word that you already know, consciousness, in your own language, whatever that is, and say, okay, but when I say consciousness in my own language, what am I designating? What is the meaning of that phrase? What is it in my experience that I call consciousness when I say it? And then you will realize that the vast majority of your own day-to-day terms and phrases that you use are not understood. Because if they were, you would pretty much be understanding the, the basis, the framework of your experience as such. You would, you would be developing clarity in regard to the five aggregates. So not going upon what's in the scripture means not dismissing the scriptures and never reading the suttas, means taking up responsibility for what those scriptures mean to you. As simple as that. Just reading a sutta right away would result in you liberating your mind from this passion. But it doesn't because of all the preconceived notions about the terms and phrases that you are reading, that you already carry, all those notions. Translating one phrase to the other does not highlight the meaning. It can bring you closer if you know where to look for it, but in itself it's just comparison between different phrases. That's it. In itself, scholarly study, scholastic study, uh, cannot result in any um, revelation of the meaning because for that, taking up that person responsibility that precedes your scholastic study needs to be developed and not abandoned. needs to be the framework of your study. So your study is then guided by the right uh, right attention, correctly attending to things, uh, only for the sake of clarifying meaning, not for the sake of satisfying intellectual craving for the you know more detailed study of these phrases and comparison and he, uh, uh, its development through history and so on. That all pretty much becomes a distraction. Um, so don't go upon something um, that may be true, even if there is no evidence to confirm it. So again, in itself, thing might be true, but that in itself is not enough to accept that as a valid premise. So, yes, this passion might be true. But now I can say, yes, this passion is true, Nibbana is true, that's it. Nibbana is real, I've done my work, I accepted that as a truth. No, Nibbana is real only if you attain it. So, there is a possibility of Nibbana being real for you. That's what I meant by element of Nibbana is present in everyone's experience. But you can see how that happened in later schools. Simply, it may be true... Thus, it is real as such, objective truth. So then people started saying, we are already in Nibbana. That's it. I don't need to do anything because Nibbana has a possibility of, of, of something that I can develop. Well, as such, it's true. Thus, I'm already in it. So, in other words, it needs to be verified for yourself. So, as I said, if the phrases are understood correctly, uh, they will result in this passion. So, if Nibbana is understood correctly, you will be in it. So, you can't just say, yes, I believe in Nibbana. I accept it as a true objective value of this reality, but I'm not in it. Well, it doesn't apply to you. Then there is no Nibbana for you. So the next one is basically uh, don't go upon uh, an axiom, which basically Nayahetu means the, the, the first the first cause, the first premise. Um, in other words, don't go upon the... There is no such as, as the... Oh, because this premise is first, because somebody said it first, to that extent, that must not be questioned. And everything else that come after it, you can question that, but not the first premise. And I think probably the, the easiest example is the like the, the generally the Christian view of, of belief in God. So you can question everything, even in like a you know, there was like existential philosophers who were Christians, and they would question everything in the entire experience, but they wouldn't question the premise that the God is real as such. 
And that in itself is, is a contradiction. So if you question everything, you have to question even your starting premise that made you question everything. So nothing should be exempted from turning your reasoning to it and applying these same principles of greed, aversion, delusion, freedom from greed, aversion, delusion. So don't go upon faulty reasoning. It's kind of self-explanatory. This one, um, it would also fall um, like um, common sense or um, using a personal experience as an as a, a argument to apply to these um, universal truths that you know the Dhamma is supposed to reveal. Uh, greed, aversion, delusion and freedom from it. So, for example, it would be for somebody who is not free from sensuality. Uh, like, actually, there was an example in the suttas of that, where he met a monk who said, oh, the greatest happiness is when you're free from sensuality. Now, this person, not being free from sensuality himself, could not see. He could not see the, the that as a truth, and then he dismissed it. So he said, no, I don't see that, thus that's not true. Uh, and that's a fallacy in itself. Like you might not see it, but that doesn't mean that you wouldn't see it if you make the right effort. Um, so if you don't see the truth personally, it doesn't mean there is no such truth. And the simile the Buddha gave, it's like the, the two friends come to the bottom of the mountain. One of them decides to climb the top. And when he's at the top, he exclaims, wow, the views from this top of this mountain is just like so beautiful. You can't even describe them. The man at the bottom of the mountain says, turns around, he doesn't see anything, just some forest, and he says, no, I don't believe that's the truth, because I don't see it for myself. So then the man from the top comes, takes him by the arm, drags him up to the top of the mountain, and says, do you see now? And then he agreed to, yes. So it's 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 the same. If somebody wants to see the benefit of uh, freedom from sensuality, they cannot see it before they're free from sensuality. Um and it's even worse then if they cannot see it before they're free from sensuality and then they choose to dismiss it as well because they can't see it. Uh, then they will never decide to climb that hill and see the benefit for themselves. Uh, don't go upon bias. Um, so, and that's again, everybody starts with a bias. So, but don't go upon bias means uh, start questioning, putting yourself in question that even when you're absolutely certain, you might be biased. So if you don't know for sure what the right view is, what freedom from greed, aversion, delusion is, means you are biased whether you see it or not. Thus, it will be safer for you in terms of the authentic uh, contradiction-free type of reflection that can result in the right view. It will be safer for you to regard yourself as already biased, even if you don't think you are. Because if you truly are not biased, putting yourself in doubt will not affect you. And that's why Sotapanna is beyond doubt. Um, don't go upon another's apparent competence. And that's um, that's if somebody is just, um, like, a, again, a confident speaker, seems to know everything, seems to have an, answer, have an answer to everything. Even if he might be the Buddha himself, talking the absolute truth. If you choose to regard things that he's saying as an objective truth because the manner of the way he's saying them, because of his competence about it, that still does not absolve you from not seeing those things for yourself. In other words, for yourself. In other words, even the ultimate truth that the Buddha teaches, unless you have the right view, is not your truth, does not apply to you. So the, <clears throat> the apparent competence of another cannot be used as an objective truth, objective value that you are partaking in unless you saw it for yourself, in which case you wouldn't need competence of, of another. You wouldn't need majority. You wouldn't need tradition to support you. You wouldn't need people to agree with you. Another another sutta where the man said, 
who has developed the right view, he says, even if the whole world says the Buddha is wrong, uh, the Dhamma is wrong, he knows that's not true because he saw Dhamma for himself. So in other words, he cannot be um, swayed by any of these external um, standpoints because he sees the core, the root of the problem, and he sees the way out. And the root of the problem is greed, aversion, delusion. That affects your thinking, affects your bias, affects your uh, perception, your reasoning, uh, and makes you avoid responsibility for, for pretty much already implying meaning in phrasing and in and, and, and scriptures and tradition and everything else, but at the same time claiming, no, it's because of the tradition, it's because of the scriptures, not because of how I took it to mean. And the point to make here is that... Uh, this can sound like uh, some sort of you're just uh, determined or you're like a, like, a, like a sort of a fundamentalist decided upon his religion, his interpretation that it's right and the whole world is wrong. But no, you, Sotapanna in this case has arrived at that such confidence not through deciding and through following these, these logical fallacies but upon seeing for himself uh, way out of greed, aversion, delusion that are universal in every person's minds. So that means that the, the entire majority that disagrees with him or that disagrees with the Buddha, if they were to free their mind from greed, aversion, delusion, they will see the same thing. So in the end, they would agree because they all climbed the top of that mountain. And that's why even the Buddha himself said, he didn't invent the Dharma or create the Dharma and so on. He just rediscovered it. He just found it like an ancient path that has been overgrown by the jungle. So he just uncovered it. So it goes against the, the preconceived notions and greed, aversion, delusion of the entire world. But it also allows the possibility for the entire world, if they were to free themselves from those preconceived notions, greed, aversion, delusion, conceit and so on, to see and walk the same path. Uh, so and then the last one is uh, yeah don't go simply upon consideration oh he's our teacher and thus thus we'll just listen to what he says and I won't have to think for myself uh, you know and that that is quite common people tend to get off onto the uh, off on on the attitude of a you know a, a big famous established teacher or confident speaker that arouses energy in them and, and wants to make them practice but again unless you are taking up responsibility for that experience of a confident teacher you will be uh, pretty much projecting and putting the objective value of practice onto that teacher as if it is you are doing it although none of that applies to you so uh, a monk might be your teacher but that still doesn't mean that he can do the work for you um, so that's why that's why it's a it's a it's a it's a logical uh, contradiction then we goes further to simply encourage columns to uh to start using these more universal criteria for which they are personally responsible, such as greed, aversion, delusion, desire, freedom from desire, and so on, to infer what, whether what's being said uh, aligns with those universal criteria. They would result in, in, in general uh, wholesomeness or unwholesomeness, as the case might be. So somebody might ask, yeah, but why is greed bad and why is aversion? But again, that's something you can arrive for yourself. The world can say, no. Uh, greed is not bad, but if you stop and think about it clearly, rationally, not avoiding responsibility for it, you will arrive at certain universal conclusions that, yeah, whenever there is a bad thing done in the world, adultery, cheating, killing, stealing, lying, harm, disrespect, disregard, 
Can any of those things be done if there is no greed, lust, aversion, passion involved? If a mind is free from greed, can it harm another? Can it want what somebody else has? If a mind is not free from greed, my own mind, can it experience the pressure of desires that basically start controlling you and your actions and your choices and you lose perspective? Impossible. So, universally, whenever something unwholesome, unskillful happens to you or to others or both, it has to be either on the basis of greed, aversion or complete careless distraction and avoidance of responsibility. So that's why they are bad. Yes, sometimes good things might be done out of greed or aversion, but that is secondary. The root of the problem, the framework, because of which the whole mass of suffering and, and, and fighting and conflict and killing exists in the world, remains unchanged. Yes, in order, it doesn't always result in killing or lying or stealing, but potential for it remains and sooner or later it will. So it's better off then to not have such basis existing in your own mind, basis of greed, aversion, delusion, and... Um, then whatever you do will be good, whatever you will be, uh, do will be, will be selfless, whatever you do will be uh, free from ill will and friendly. So in other words, greed, aversion, delusion are completely redundant for good, for doing good, but are absolutely necessary when the bad is done. So that's why it's better to, 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 to abandon it, it's better to avoid it, it's better to give it up. So using those criteria then, when you follow, when you hear different philosophies, different teachers, different different instructions, you ask yourself, okay, so does this lead to freedom from greed, aversion, delusion? To what extent? Um, to, uh, in what manner? Or it doesn't even deal with it. And then if you realize that it doesn't even address those things, and it certainly does not help mind not free from greed, aversion, delusion to reach freedom from greed, aversion, delusion, then, then it's not really a relevant teaching. Because it's rooted in greed, aversion, delusion. As simple as that. So, and then the Buddha goes saying that. says, does the greed appear in a, man, in a man's mind for his benefit or harm? Being given to greed, being overwhelmed and, van, uh, and, and conquered by the, mentally, overwhelmed by the pressure um, of greed, the man takes life, steals, commits adultery, tells lies, prompts another to do so, and so on. So that's what we just said. So it's same for greed, aversion, um, and delusion. So that's why you shouldn't go by these external circumstances. Uh, sorry, external criteria, majority, tradition, hearsay, authority of another, and so on, because uh, they they mask your responsibility for the meaning behind those criteria, meaning for which you are responsible. For as long as your responsibility for the meaning is covered up. Greed, aversion, delusion are invisible, which means you don't really see what's beneficial for you and what isn't. Um, so that's why first you don't go by these criteria on their own, but you question, reflect, put them in doubt pretty much. Then the responsibility for your choices, for your actions, and for the, uh, for the meaning that you get from things will be felt as yours. You, you will feel the weight of it. Oh, I could do this or I could do that. Either way, it's on me, which means the consequences of that will be equally on me. But see, it's easier if I say, oh, I'll just do that because our tradition does this. See, now whatever comes out of it, I won't feel responsible uh, for it. doesn't matter what, re what that results in. I'll say, well, I just follow the tradition. I just did my duty. And you hear that a lot like uh, among like soldiers who are in the army. It's like they actually go and kill people saying, oh, it's my duty. Yeah, but you chose to take on that duty. You chose 
the meaning of that duty for you. Thus, <laughs> all the actions that come out of that duty are on you. Doesn't matter, even if the entire society agrees that it's a good and wholesome thing to do, protect your country and so on. Yeah, you're engaging in killing, um, which cannot be done without greed, without aversion, without some sort of delusion, which means you are engaging in unwholesome states that will have unwholesome results, yet you're fully oblivious, blind, cover up the responsibility for it because you projected it onto the duty. See, this duty is impersonal, I just serve my country or something like that. No, you serve your own interpretation of the meaning of serving the country. So, you serve yourself. You're always responsible. And that's not a pleasant truth for vast majority of people because vast majority of people live by placing their responsibility for their actions, for their interpretations, for their meaning onto the external authority, onto the external criteria, onto the, uh, onto the external you know, views, religion, philosophy, tradition, and so on. And that's why they do remain victims of their own greed, aversion, delusion, and then subjected to everything else that follows. And that's also why, for, uh, for example, for a sort of somebody who has seen, seen the right view, he says, nobody can be my guide. I, no external circumstance can be taken as my guide to tell me what to do, because internally I see what needs to be done, universally, to be free from greed, aversion, delusion. And that's why also, uh, no amount of um, that kind of, uh, the majority, the, the, the blame, the, the, um, the, the worldly winds that Buddha talk about, praise, blame, uh, um, uh, fame, disrepute, all of that, none of that can really existentially affect or disturb somebody with the right view. Because he doesn't depend anymore on those external criteria uh, for avoidance of his own responsibility. Thus, when that ex external, for example, majority or tradition, if, if they're against something uh, that, that individual Sotapanna might be doing, he won't be affected by it in the same manner he would be affected by it if he is bound by that tradition or by majority for avoidance of his personal responsibility. So that's why praise and blame will cease to affect you because you don't exist anymore in that publicly assumed domain where praise and blame apply. And you existed there before because you used that assumed domain to avoid responsibility for your own actions, choices, interpretation and meaning. If you are not affected by praise and blame, because you don't existentially depend on that assumed domain anymore, uh, you will not have ill will towards people either. People that criticize you or disagree with you. That doesn't mean you pretend that, you know, what they say is right or something like that. No, you, you have the object, more objective criteria now, the criteria of the right view, but no amount of criticism, no amount of attack by majority or hearsay, uh, none, of those, none of those reasons can, uh, can be taken personally now because you're not personally involved with that assumed domain anymore. So that's why if somebody does cultivate uh, the criteria that the Buddha uh, instructed Kalamas to do, yeah, they will, they will go beyond ill will in as much as they go beyond passion because um, it kind of goes hand in hand. It's pretty obvious. So, because you, you, you are not out there, publicly assumed, on the level of, of, of tradition or majority. Thus, when that traditional majority might disagree or attack you or criticize you, you will not be able to take it personally because you're not personally involved. Uh, and then, we, which means you won't lose perspective. Which means if, say, majority starts disagreeing with something that, you know, a Sotapanna does, uh, he won't act out of fear because he's not afraid of them. But it doesn't mean he'll dismiss what they're saying either. He'll have perspective, he'll have enough space to see 
well, maybe they do have a point. Not that they understand the meaning behind it, but that doesn't matter. Um, so then you wouldn't have a problem changing the ways or not changing the ways, depending of, you know, if, if, if greed, aversion, delusion would be sort of uh, encouraged by changing the ways. And that's, uh, that's why in the suttas, you know, they're like uh, many of those, um, in the Vina, especially for the monks, there are many uh, like smaller rules, kind of like circumstantially arisen responses to the environment, to people at the time, but, you know, monks lived in certain areas where people didn't want them to, I don't know, walk across the fields during this time of year. Then they complained that they would say, don't walk across the fields during that time of year, and so on. So the point is, none of those, none of those really, uh, none of those uh, rules, none of those... Um, standpoints uh, are kind of directly relevant to its practice but what is relevant to the practice is uh, being left alone not being harassed by people so then the Buddha would just tell monks just go along with those things so they will leave you alone because otherwise they're just going to hassle you and make your life more difficult which might make your practice more difficult in return but then on the other hand you know there was, a, there was an instance when a man came to Buddha and said uh, to accept his daughter as a gift as an offering to him because you know she was so beautiful and many other teachers would have accepted her or kings and so on. So, but he wants to give it to Buddha and the Buddha just mocked him and the whole experience of offering a daughter. Uh, and he didn't just, and you know, and I'm sure majority of people would have agreed with that man. But see, going along with that cannot possibly result in, in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Cannot set the example for others to practice towards non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. So it would have been inappropriate to do so, even if it would have had no desire to that woman. So it's you don't always go by majority. The criteria remains unchanged. What is beneficial is what is rooted in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, what is rooted in freedom from pres pe pressure of desires, what is rooted to, uh, in dispassion, disenchantment, um, giving up of the acquisition, simplicity and solitude. That's the criteria that must not be abandoned. So if sometimes you encounter things in day-to-day -day life, that you are unsure about, again, just, just stack them against this, this criteria and see, and then you would also see if they're relevant or not. You know, like a, for somebody like, say, a lay practitioner, somebody who is still in the lay setting but tries to practice the Dhamma, um, yeah, putting up with other people will be, will be uh, inevitable, interactions with them, their demands, expectations, and then you, you, you might sort of be doubtful as to, you know, how far should I go, what should I do? Same. You recognize how relevant things that are um, asked for you, uh, how relevant things that are asked from you are. How much would they affect your practice, your solitude, your precepts? If they wouldn't really make much difference, you go along with it, so they leave you alone. If they would make a significant difference, like you know, I don't know, your parents are pressuring you to get married, then you just have to draw a line. And then even if your whole country and all of your relatives and everybody disagrees with that, because the right thing for man is to marry and, and start a family. You say no, because the right thing for a man is to not give in to greed, aversion, delusion. And uh, and then you take responsibility for it. Then if for the rest of uh, your life they don't want to talk to you and dismiss you, it doesn't matter. You know what the truth is. In a sense, you're closer to the right criteria of truth, which is non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. That doesn't mean it will feel light, uh, light right, uh, or always justified, uh, you know, undeveloped mind, not free from doubt, will be pressured, will be sort of doubtful, will be trying to kind of sway you, but you stick with the criteria that you now know for yourself are beneficial, even if it doesn't always feel like that. And that's the true practice of going against the grain. Um, so, so yeah, Kalama Sutta is, is very actually useful and it can certainly result in, in the right view.
if applied rightly, if the responsibility is taken up correctly on the right level, uh, you will not fight the world, but you will not be part of it either by sort of depending on that kind of existential acceptance and avoidance of responsibility through various sort of externally assumed standpoints. Um, and that in itself is that would constitute what the Buddha was calling the mundane right view, which then, if you cultivate, you will get to see the root of suffering and the way out, which is pretty much the whole point. <laughs>